And it is Plan B with Rebecca Ellen Davis. Hello. Hello. That's a bold opening gambit from a Mr. Dunbar. <laughs> you see, even you, even you are making fun. That's unkind. It really is. It's uh, not unsuitable for you somehow, though, John. I don't mean that in a bad way. Well, and I can in- see why you would think it is. Yeah, I'm not sure how it's meant in a good way, but let's move straight along. <laughs> John, I wanted to say something before before we start, because I forgot to put this in Plan B, but it's, it's just has stayed with me the whole day. I read this morning, I don't know if you saw, that um, Japan's theme parks have banned screaming on roller coasters. I mentioned it over, a little earlier, yeah. And that the, the, the commercial that was run to, to publicize this features a, an executive saying, please inside your heart. It just struck me that that's the perfect tagline for 2020, isn't it, John? Yeah, Please scream inside your heart. Yeah. Two minds, but with a single thought. That is how I opened my show, talking about that particular line. Miles, um, well, yeah, Miles Davis Dorji, so double-barreled um, surname to take account of both of his adoptive parents' names. Is that it? It's not Miles something. Davis Dorji, or did you think Davis Dorji was enough? He does have a something. His something is Salauddin, which is the name of Haji's recently departed father. Um, so yes, it's Miles Salauddin Davis Dorji, which is obviously a bit of a cultural headache. <laughs> but um, <laughs> a headache. Um, and he's been in your lives for three weeks, going well. Yes, John. It was one little, little glitch, so to speak, which is that. Um, we were informed that at a certain point in the adoption process, right at the end, we were exposed to somebody who had been confirmed a COVID case. So we we didn't want to leap to any conclusions, and we simply said we would monitor this in a responsible way. And about uh, nine days into the adoption, uh, the three of us, me, my partner Haji, and Miles, all began developing sort of fluey symptoms. And this was, you know, sort of a bit of a niggling concern because we had already been isolating. So we hadn't been out, we hadn't been in contact with people, and it seemed odd that we would simply develop a cold. Since contrary to popular belief, you do develop colds from people, not from the weather being cold. Um so as a result, we decided for peace of mind to seek out testing, John. So we went to the only remaining drive-through testing venture in Cape Town, which is in Blue Route, run by Diskem. And what has followed since then, honestly, has been such a nightmare that it has just led me to believe that ordinary people like me should not seek testing. It is now nine days, and we have not received our results. I mean, I doubt we're going to get any t- today since it's almost four so that will be 10 days tomorrow and the, just the psychological toll of waiting for those results as ridiculous as it might sound has been so draining and a lot of people said well what difference does it make just you know conduct yourself as if you have it fast so simply isolate yourself in a more extreme way than you might normally which is easy to say but with with a new baby for instance i would like to introduce this new baby to his grandparents and I currently feel that I can't do so in a responsible way until I get those results. I'm an inexperienced parent, so I'm also, you know, sort of hyper paranoid about cold and flu symptoms in my infant child and whether these could, in fact, be COVID-19. 
And then there's also the fact that people say, well, you know, even if you do test positive, you simply will be told, unless you're very severe, to treat it as a flu or cold. So take, you know, Sinutab and Carenza and whatever else. But it is also true that one definitely monitors a cold or flu differently to, to COVID-19. I mean, my partner has a racking cough and stumbling around the house. That's terrible. Should I assume that she is having a bad flu or should I be genuinely concerned? Indeed. Then you start wondering that you're making these symptoms up in your head because half the world is telling you there's no way you have COVID-19 and the other half say, oh, well, you probably definitely do. And day after day ticks by and these results do not come back. And what it has left me with is a profound regret that I got tested at all nine days into the process. And John, I think, you know, I don't want to sound like a whinging elitist because I understand that the the, the laboratories are backlogged, that there's severe problems all over the country and that the public sector is particularly hard hit. But this is a test that was privately paid for where their marketing tool basically is that you receive results within two to five days and you do so, I think, on that Packed on that understanding. I've, just for the record, I've had a lot of complaints from listeners, and so have other presenters on the radio station, particularly about this issue at that testing station. Yes, yeah, so I believe. Mm. And in the end, after bugging them res- relentlessly, I mean, they must just hate me so much. They've explained, oh, no, your, your results, your samples got couriered to Joburg. They've only just now gone in for processing, so maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day. But I think that, you know, unless you are a healthcare worker frontline or unless you are working in an industry that requires constant close contact with, with members of the public, I really feel we ordinary people should not should not get tested because the, the I mean, the, the strain it puts you under, I think, honestly, is probably worse than the eventual outcome. Wondering if they've lost your test. If so, should you begin the whole process again? If they come back positive, what does that mean now that it's you know, 10 days after you were tested, it's it's not something I can recommend. Yeah, I mean, we just had a call from Garth. He had his test on the 23rd, no results yet. So, I mean, that's even longer. Oh, than good Lord. Yeah. Okay, let's talk, let's talk about um, democratic lotteries, uh, a case that, a case for which Malcolm Gladwell makes in his latest podcast. So, this is something I've read about before, but Mr. Gladwell reminded me and it struck me as particularly salient now with the news that Kanye West intends to run for the US presidential elections, although we don't actually know if he is intending to. He is mad enough to, but he is also savvy enough to be using this as a publicity ploy. So who knows? But the mere fact that Kanye West could be running for president, I think, says it all. Just the idea that, you know, in ancient Athens, the government was selected by a civic lottery. So how that would work in our society is that you would get a letter or an SMS, perhaps more reliably, in South Africa saying, congratulations, you have been selected to serve in government. And it would operate like jury duty. So they would select, I mean, 500 citizens would be randomly selected and you would serve for, say, four years on the government. You would not be expected to have any particular knowledge or particular Speciality. I mean, the whole idea is that it is entirely random, so a street sweeper could be selected as, as plausibly as an academic. But you would have access to pools of experts to consult in order to make decisions. Everyone has the same chance to serve, so it would be a truly democratic form of governance. It would be truly representative, unless there was some major statistical 
you know, anomaly, meaning that would end up with a, a government that actually would look like the people of this country and be representative of it. There's research to show that diverse groups of people make better decisions. And because it would be constantly rotating, it wouldn't be in this government's interest to, for instance, pass legislation to hold on to power, to benefit one particular political party. It would do away with the expense of political campaigning, of running elections and the social divisiveness that creates. And also just the fact that, as seen by Donald Trump, as seen by Kanye West, candidates for politics currently tend to be driven by ambition and narcissism. And that isn't just me being rude. That's what research has shown. This would do away with that. It would do away with the theatrics of politics altogether and make it about a group of people brought together like a jury to simply make decisions on behalf of their community. What do you think, John? Uh, <laughs> I'm sitting here wondering whether I want my name to be <laughs> on that select, randomly selected list. I quite like the idea as long as I'm not called to serve that's either a, on a jury a or in government. No, that is a good point. And the idea is that if there would have to be an opt-out mechanism, which I'm not sure about because I suspect then we'd end up with the same problem as the current politics, that the people who would opt in would in some ways be the least fit for office. Yeah, I mean, it was either George Bernard Shaw, Oscar Wilde, who said the desire to hold public office should immediately disqualify anybody from ever doing so, which is kind of my... Um, but also to say, to note, John, this isn't just fine, this is sky. In, in some states in the U.S., they have brought in what they call policy juries. So juries, as in 12 peers, who will sit and assess the pros and cons of a potential policy decision. And that is like a very microcosmic scale on which this model could actually work. I, I mean, I'm, I'm quite sold, to be honest. So am I. Um, we, we, um, I. I do want to get to the sniffing, so let's quickly go through songs which are being taken off radio playlists because they are problematic in the time of COVID-19. So across the U.S., apparently, both radio stations and retailers, because you walk into clicks or whatever the equivalent is and you hear songs playing, retailers are pruning their playlists to get rid of any songs that could be viewed as sensitive in the current pandemic era. One of them is this amazing song I never heard of, uh, Johnny, Withers, Johnny Rivers, Rockin' Pneumonia and the Boogie Woogie Flu, uh, which is currently deemed to be you know, inappropriate. Um, the song Fever, of course, is also a bit on the nose at the moment and it's been suggested that others include uh, R.E.M.'s The End of the World as we know it. It also feels a bit close to the bone. <laughs> Even the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Berlin, Take My Breath Away. Are these songs that we should be exposed to at the moment or are they potentially triggering? And it, again, it seems like a silly debate perhaps, but in yes. the past, this has happened every time there is a major event. During the Gulf War, the BBC banned the Phil Collins song In the Air Tonight because it was thought to bring up thoughts of Scud missiles for those who have family serving overseas. In the US after 9-11, there were tons of songs which were taken off playlists, some of which were kind of understandable, New York, New York, knocking on heaven's door, but even Alanis Morissette's ironic because of the line, Mr. Play It Safe was afraid to fly, he packed a suitcase, the plane went down, he was smiling, saying, isn't this nice? Apparently, the people who make radio playlists, John, think that we are quite um, quite a, a sensitive bunch. I'm not sure it would bring me to that, to a state of deep distress to hear one of these songs. But I'm well, let me let me give you my view. Huh. 
<laughs> that is a very good way of introducing a topic about sniffing, John. So we were going to discuss this last week and we got distracted, but I was very curious to hear your take on this. But the, the University of Basel in Switzerland has just released research reviewing 70 different times, types of sniff. Just in case you missed that number, people, seven zero seventy different kinds yes. of sniff. Can you believe it? A complex taxonomy, and we are not talking here about a kind of functional. I've got a cold, and I don't blow my nose. We're talking about sniffs which are used on some level unconsciously, but to make a conversational point. So, for instance, one used at the end of an anecdote you just finished to signal, "Okay, I'm done here. Everyone can move on." And then a bit, a bit complex because there's another which is used to signal hold on i'm not quite done yet so i may have finished that thought but i'm just sniffing to hold the floor while i prepare my next thought another sniff (laughs) i don't know which one that was i'm going to keep talking another sniff to indicate you're about to say something critical to someone i'm curious john because i cannot ever recall consciously using a sniff for any conversational purpose and i'm interested to know if you can or even can recall being in a presence of the presence of a well-used sniff i have never noticed either in myself or in anybody with whom i've been having a conversation or other people whose conversation i am overhearing i have never gone that's an interesting sniff never but there's 70 of them there's 70 of them must be on the lookout. It's also claimed that people often sniff as a way of alerting people to the fact that a public toilet cubicle is in operation, which is something I can relate to, but I myself favor a cough or on occasion simply tearing toilet paper in quite a loud and obtrusive fashion. I've never used a sniff for that particular purpose, but I do see its merits. And let me just share with you before you go, Rebecca, Malcolm's uh, WhatsApp. My current ringtone is the police ditty, don't stand so close to me. Unfortunately, nobody phones me when I'm in a queue somewhere. (laughs) We will have Plan B with Rebecca Davis again next week. I hope. 